Spencer, did you get active this weekend? Yes, Fred. Did a little bit of a vintage ride. Got out the steel bike. Got out the wool jersey. It was, uh, it was goofy, but it was fun. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. I participated in a half marathon. Ooh, not so much fun. Not as much fun as the vintage bike ride. Uh, well, for people out there who are active like us on the weekends, Health IQ, a big sponsor of the Velonese podcast, has life insurance catered directly to you. What they do is by working with healthy, active people like us, they can give a better rate on life insurance. Listeners of the Valentine's Podcast, you can get a free quote on life insurance by going to a URL. Spencer, that URL? It is healthiq.com slash Bellanews. Check it out, get a free quote, and uh, thanks to Health IQ for supporting the Bellanews Podcast. On with the show. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I am Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News Magazine. It is a wonderful, beautiful day out in Boulder, Colorado, and I am joined, as always, by News Director Spencer Paulison. Hey, Fred. Spencer, did you ride your bike in today? I did, like I always do. Oh, man. It's bike commuting, man. Really pleasant out Saving today. the earth. Yeah. Saving the planet. Um, I'm also joined by European correspondent Andrew Hood, all the way from Spain. Andy, Hello. Buenas tardes. You guys are waking me up for my siesta. Oh my gosh. We're, we always seem to be like checking in with you like re, like pre or post siesta. I, I'm now convinced that the Spanish siesta is like a like a four hour affair. <laughs> it depends on what time your siesta begins, which is the key question always yeah. when it comes to siesta. Well, but it's a good habit to get into. Today is no day for siestas because we have the route announcement for the Tour de France. That's right, everyone. We know now what the 2018 Tour de France is going to look like. And on today's show, we're going to get into it. We're going to break down. We're going to look at the stages. We're going to look at the weird new features. I don't know about you guys, but it seems like this is a real outside the box type of affair. Um, but before we get to that, we have to talk about the biggest news in our world in the last week, and that's the news that Velo News has been sold. Velo News has new owners. Yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's a new era, isn't it, Fred? Brave new era for Velo News, and it's a new era that is linked to the old era. So, as some of you may have seen, on Thursday of last week, Velo News was sold by our previous owners, the World Triathlon Corporation, to a small independent group called Pocket Outdoor Media, based here in Boulder, Colorado. And Pocket Outdoor Media has three private owners, uh, one of whom, Felix McGowan, was the old owner of Velo News and the guy who um, purchased the magazine, I believe it was back in the late 80s and really helped grow Velo News into the big international brand that it you know that it's become. So I was working for the magazine when it was purchased by the competitor group 10 years ago. I saw Velo News live under a competitor group for for 10 years both as an employee but then also just as a fan of cycling. And I became convinced after a few years that private equity was not a great ownership model for niche media, niche enthusiast media. I see Andrew Hood smiling at me right now. Um, we appreciated all the, the help and resources that Competitor Group gave us over the years, but the company very much became an events company as it should have, focused on rock and roll marathons and later Ironman triathlons when it was acquired by the, triathlete, the uh, World Triathlon Corporation. And the media companies, Velonews included in that, we were... You know, we were definitely part of the family, but it was a it was a, an events company that also had media assets. And now we are f entering a scenario in which we, the media, are 
the primary assets for this new this new company. It's a good feeling. It's exciting. There's definitely a lot of support for what Velonews does. So I think it'll I think it'll reflect on some more content for you readers out there and listeners. I think I think it'll, you'll like it. Yeah, I mean we're really enthusiastic. We're very optimistic. We've been talking about um, you know we're hiring. We have uh, a couple positions open now at Velonews, including a reporter position. We are looking at the magazine and website and th- talking about ways to grow. And I just wanted to cue all of you in on all the new exciting stuff that's going on and that's going to be happening with Velonews because. Um, we feel like we're headed towards a really, really positive direction and just wanted to let everybody know what's been what's been going on. Hoodie, you feeling good? You stoked? Feeling very good. It's exciting to have, I think, owners that are first passionate about cycling. That's, that's the, the reason they're back in this game. That's exciting to have that kind of backing. We're out here trying to get those great stories and videos and podcasts uh, to the loyal readers of LNews and to say, you know, thanks for the people that stuck with us, and uh, hopefully we can get some of those old readers back and get some new readers following us again. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the three gentlemen who make up Pocket Outdoor Media are all, uh, we can just say that they're crazy cycling fans. They're way into it. Way into it. Um, Felix himself raced in Europe for a number of years. Steve Maxwell has written uh, many columns that have appeared on VeloNews.com. Greg Thomas, big-time mountain biker and um, adventure racer over the years. They love the sport. And, um, you know, being owned by people who love the sport, I think, is going to mean good things for us. I'm excited. So I'm excited for the tour, too. I am super excited for the tour. So, guys, let's get into it. This Monday... We saw there was a there was a simulcast. How do they do it now? They beam it into space now. The Tour de France route announcement, I feel like every year gets a little bit bigger. Um, there's more riders there. Contador was there this year, and uh, they did it. They they pulled the curtain up on the 2018 Tour de France route. So let's go around the table right now and give our just top line initial takes from this coming year's tour route. Hoodie, you're our guest of honor. Let's start for you. What What's your initial knee-jerk reaction from this year's, this coming year's tour route? I was uh, very pleasantly surprised. I think it's a great tour road, very original. I think it balances this kind of modern trend we're having on these short stages of a mix of terrain. We're seeing the gravel hit the tour. The cobbles are back. These short, explosive mountain stages, which have been really popular over the last 10 years. And plus kind of balancing in that into what, a Tour de France route should look like. I mean, the Tour, I think, has to be modern, but also has to pay kind of homage to its its legacy. It's not it's not because you think a baseball game's boring and you change it to, well, let's only have seven innings in a baseball game instead of nine. No, it's like the Tour has to be 21 stages, and within that kind of blueprint, those guardrails, there's a lot of things you can do. I think the Tour de France under Prudhomme and Gouverneau over the last uh, eight, 10 years have done a really good job at finding that balance and I, I thought, I mean, I was floored today. I thought it was a great tour. What, what is this baseball thing? Is that, a, is that like a track event? Um, I think Mad- it may be going like on Madison right now. Yeah. Or, um, okay. Yeah. Good take, Hoodie. Uh, Spencer, any takes? I Initial think, take? I'm, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian and say I think this tour is a gimmick. I think it's kind of weird. I, there's some parts of it that I do like. I have to admit, when I look at it, it feels like the first week of the race is solely designed to get the race up to Roubaix. It just takes this kind of diagonal route to the northeast, and it ends up in Roubaix, which is all right. And having cobblestones in the route can be entertaining, but it's it's a little weird. I think that, for me, I do enjoy the increase in stages in the in the Pyrenees, and it's exciting to see the Alpe d'Huez come back, but 
I just feel like it's a bit of a gimmick, especially with that 65 kilometer stage in the Pyrenees. Like, come on, that's just, that's so short. That's ridiculous. I, I can see that Spencer, you and your gimmicky take, um, especially because like there's a section of dirt, but it's not really going to, you know, totally influence GC because it's so far away from the finish. Yeah. There's a 65 kilometer stage, but like, I don't know, is that, is that too short to really do anything? So I I see your gimmicky take. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that that's like a lukewarm take or anything like that. Uh, my take is that, this is, you know, for the Tour de France, which we all know is the most traditional Grand Tour. It's not the Vuelta trying crazy stuff out. It's not the Giro beating everyone over the head with big, long death marches through the Alps. It's, uh, you know, it's the one with the history and the tradition. And to me, for the traditional Tour de France, this is like the pink mohawk of tour routes. This is like, <laughs> this is like no, the only thing that would be, this is the proverbial like putting dirt jumps in the middle of like one of the tour routes. Um, yeah, they have not just some cobblestones, but like a crap ton of cobblestones. Yeah, 20, 21 kilometers, 22 kilometers, yeah, yeah. a lot. They have dirt. They have this ridiculously short stage that comes uh, amongst four days of really tough climbing. This is like, you know, you had your kind of nerdy cousin growing up, the kid who wore like pleated dockers and stuff. And this is the proverbial, you, you know, you see him at Christmas vacation one year and he has, he like pierced his ear. And he's just like, hey, man, I'm like, I'm really into emo bands now. He's just going outside the box. So this is the Tour de France getting wacky, getting weird. Who knows what it's actually going to do, but I support it. Get weird, Tour de France. Get weird, ASO. Let your freak flag fly. We should mention this year, the race is occurring one week later than normal to accommodate soccer's World Cup, which as Americans... A bit of football, eh? Well, as Americans, whose team didn't even qualify for the gosh darn World Cup... I don't even think that that tournament exi- like counts now. I'm not going to watch. No, America won't be there. Forget it. Freaking Americans. Can't believe that. <laughs> um, it's an experimental route, dirt stages, cobbles, and smaller teams. So, Hoodie, a quick question for you. One week later in the year, does that have any real tangible impact on the race? I, could, I guess you could make the argument that maybe, maybe some of the Tour de Suisse guys will be a little bit more rested before coming in. Yeah, I don't think it's going to impact really too much in terms of how the, the, the tour unfolds. I mean, there is the extra week between the Giro and the tour. So that opens up the speculation that maybe some riders might do the Giro tour double with an extra week to recover. But I even doubt that. I mean, the tour is so hard. I mean, the reason I think the Giro tour double is so hard is because the tour is so hard. Everyone talks about how hard the Giro is. I think it's more the fact that the tour requires so much of a singular rider that it's impossible to do the Giro and then come into the tour because the tour just demands so much. But they think that first week that, uh, that, that uh, Spencer was perhaps saying it's almost worth overlooking. Uh, I think there's quite a bit packed into that first week. And I think it's going to be very decisive into how this tour really unfolds. I mean, you got the, the double climb of the Mir- the, the Breton, you've got uh, the team time trial stage three, which is, I think going to, you know, have some significant differences there. Plus the cobbles, plus, uh, those windy stages in the Bhutan, I think the first week is really going to, uh, you know, see a lot of these riders be eliminated. Ooh, getting rid of some guys early. Yeah, and I, I was going to add that what Hoodie's saying about that difficult first week does play into the smaller teams that we're going to have for this tour. One fewer rider each, so that's eight total. It could be a matter of some of these teams losing a couple of guys that are pretty key support climbers before they even get into the Alps. And that is a factor, especially if you're facing a high-powered team like Team Sky 
that has multiple cars to play on those climbs. Well, and that right there is it. I mean, that's the big elephant in the room, right? For the last few years, we've seen ASO really try to game the route against Chris Froome and Team Sky, basically trying to create these hurdles for the Team Sky domination. Um, I believe that people have started to pay attention and listen to the criticism that the tour has become boring because of the formulaic riding of Team Sky and Chris Froome, which whatever, chapeau to them for having the strongest team and for being able to control the race. And for having a lot of money. Yeah, chapeau to them for having all the money to build their crazy camper that like extends out and has, <laughs> I don't know, masseuse inside or whatever. I don't know. Villainy's Hey, Hoodie, didn't you check out that camper at the Vaulted, actually? I did. I did. There's a uh, there's a bar back in the corner. And there's some big screen TVs for watching some games. It's, it's a nice setup. Ooh, a bar? How is a bar going to help them win the Tour de France? Guys, new Velenews <laughs> owners, build us one of those things. Yeah. yeah we have the Velenews right, right. Death Star. It's going to be great. Uh, I back- say a coffee bar. A coffee bar. Oh. <laughs> oh, yes, lads. How about a spot of tea before the race, eh? So... Back to it, when we look at this year's race, knowing that, okay, eight-man teams, uh, crazy chaotic stages, did ASO succeed in its uh, annual goal of throwing a challenge up against Dave Brailsford and Chris Froome? Do we think that this route succeeds in that? I I think that uh, it certainly is going to make it very complicated for Team Sky. You have to remember last year, Team Sky basically raced the second half of at least of the tour without Garen Thomas. So he was out. Garen Thomas was out. So they actually rode with an eight-man team last year. So that didn't seem to slow down Team Sky very much. Uh, but this is, I mean, every year they try to think of something. That their, their goal is not really, they say, to favor one rider or the other. They just try to want, they want to have an interesting race that comes down to the final weekend. And I think on this course, actually, that might not be the case. This might be where one or two top protagonists are out of the frame completely in the first week. And then, say, in the Alpha to West stage, someone just rails it and gets a three-minute gap on everyone. The race is over at uh, stage 10. Let's all remember what happened on the cobblestone stage in the 2014 Tour de France when Chris Room went out and Contador had trouble. That could be, it could be a replay this year in that cobblestone stage. And, yeah, I mean, those, those early stages, I think you're right, though, about Nier de Bretagne, about the team time trial. Those will, those will be pretty major factors in the overall. I'm with you, Spencer. I see that cobblestone stage, and I see that as a big double middle finger to Chris Froome. Or maybe not a big double middle finger, but it's like, uh, okay, man, uh, there's one thing that we've learned about you over the last five years is that you can survive downhills, you can be great on time trials, you can sur- you, you can excel in every terrain out there. So let's revisit the one terrain in the last five years that gave you trouble, which was Pave. And oh, here's a ton of it. Because Hoodie, like you said, this isn't just like superficial Pave. This isn't decorative Pave, the kind of the nice like type of Pave that you'd wrap a present with and give it to uh, your mom on her birthday. Like this is mean, nasty Pave. And a lot of it, I mean, Mons and Pavel, like they have some of the real classic sectors in there. Um, am I reading this right? That this may be a just sort of turd in the punch bowl for Chris Froome. Is that what they're trying to do here? Screw with Mr. Froome? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think that's what they're trying to do is just create a race that's going to be unpredictable. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out, actually, that when Froome crashed out in 2014, he did crash out before they arrived to the Pave in that particular stage. I remember he crashed the stage before that, then he crashed again. So he actually never made it to the Pave in 2014. A lot of people seem to remember that incorrectly and think that he crashed out on the pave so so Froome is quite defensive when it comes to his pave riding skills he 
He says that he can handle it. And I think if we learned anything watching Chris Froome the last five years is he can adjust and really kind of rewire his setup to take on any challenge that the tour presents. Like even uh, when last the two years ago, he had all these downhills. Everyone thought, oh, Froome's terrible in the downhill. What happened? He attacked on the downhill and got time on everybody else. So uh, I think if any team can be able to kind of handle this challenge better than anyone else would be with Sky because, you know, already they will be thinking about ways they'd be able to get through that stage without losing time. Hoodie, I think you even wrote a story about how adaptable Chris Froome is and why that why he is so good at all these races because he's able to adapt that way. That, that is that is correct. Uh, yeah, it sounds like we have a Froome fan on staff. Oh, God, such uh, a Froomer. You're cut. such a Froomer. It's like a Homer, but for Froome. So okay, let's let's pick some other names then. I mean, we all know about Chris Froome, but what are some other names we can throw around as potential favorites for this course? Um, I think that uh, Roman Bardet is a favorite to just get bounced off the cobblestones and end up in a ditch. He's a favorite <laughs> to have a freaking train wreck time trial on stage 20. <laughs> um, you know, I could see, you know, I, look, the, the conversation that we've been having over the last year, well, at least since the Giro, is is Tom Dumoulin the guy? You know, he won the World Time Trial Championship. He's a great climber. He can, he can time trial. You know, is he the guy to challenge Froome? And... I guess a question that I have about this route, is this a route that sets up a Froome-Dumoulin challenge? I mean, there is the time trial at the end, but I mean, do we think that Tommy D is a guy who can excel in this route? I think that he can. You know, we saw this year at the Giro, uh, just, you know, despite his uh, ill-timed little call of nature at the base of the Stelvio, uh, Dumoulin was really one of the best climbers in the entire Giro this year against a pretty deep quality Giro climbing field. I mean, this year's Giro, it only riders weren't there with Contador and, and uh, Quintana and Froome and, well, you know. So, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> there were there were a few guys that weren't at the Giro, but Dumoulin was one of the best guys there on the mountain. So he's not like a one-trick pony. He's not like a, a guy can only get time on the against the clock and then, like, hold on. I mean, Dumoulin's a guy who can, I think, excel in all-terrain and it's interesting because, you know, Dumoulin's coming up. He's got this confidence. He's building the teams being built around him. And of those guys that can climb, he's probably the best one who can get through that first week, I think, because he's a big, burly guy. Here's the name. Vincenzo Nibali. Mm, good name. He, I think this is a great route for him, provided his Bahrain Merida team can keep it together in that team time trial. He's going to ride well when it comes to stages that are those those mountainous stages, Alpe d'Huez, he should be fine. He can hang on the Roubaix cobblestones, as he's demonstrated in the 2014 tour. He's going to ride well on that short stage, I imagine. He can time trial. That's going to be a hilly technical time trial in the French Basque country on that stage 20. Uh, he's I like Nibley for this race already. I really like Nibali for for losing four minutes on the Alpe d'Huez stage. Oh, he's not going to be that bad on Alpe d'Huez, really? Come on, really? I just I don't think he can accelerate with Chris Froome, but I think that if if drawn out into battle, mano y mano with Chris Froome, that Chris Froome will stab him with his proverbial saber and let him bleed all over the uh, uh, the tarmac. Um, look, I love Nibali for the cobble section. I could see him taking some time, becoming an early leader. Um, I don't know about the monster days in the Pyrenees and then that Alpe d'Huez stage. Um, in fact, guys, let's get into it. This Alpe d'Huez stage, I mean, it's a very classic Tour de France Alpe d'Huez stage. They're hitting the Quad de Fer. They're hitting uh, a couple other... Madeleine. The Madeleine, like big, giant, long, leg-crushing climbs before hitting the 21 switchbacks. Um, you know, we've seen Chris Froome struggle 
on the Alpes before, on classic stages like this where there's a ton of climbing beforehand. Um, I think the fact that it comes so early into the race is going to really set the tone for what happens in the second half. Um, any, any thoughts on having Alpe d'Huez occur this early in the race? We've always seen, over, even over the last 20 years or more, the first climbing stage is always decisive. Like you just said, Fred, it sets the tone for the rest of the race. Riders who want to win the Tour know that they want to get as much time as they possibly can, ideally taking it early. You can see a scenario where Froome might have to be making up some time if he lost some time in that first week. All the big guns are going to hit hard that day. And I think that's where you'll see Team Sky try to take control of the race already. They don't want, like, even like this year's Welta, all the key stages were coming in that last week, but they're always trying to chip it away at trying to get five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds there and here and there where they can. And on a stage like Off the West, man, you can take minutes, not on all your competitors, but against anyone that's struggling. And that's where Froome is really at his forte, I think, is the ability to, to strike when he has to and be able to race tactically. What about then this? Pyrenean punch. I'm really excited about that too. So we're doing the clockwise Tour de France this year. We're hitting uh, Alps, then Pyrenees, and Spencer. We're going. They're going to be going into some of these Pyrenean climbs that you got to see this year on the Haute Route. That's right, Fred. The see, Haute Route. See, my two week vacation riding bikes in France paid it off. Yeah. Now, now I've got the insider line on all these climbs. That's that's right. Hey, you so wanna, you're welcome. Maybe I should go again. Next who year? wants to come work at uh, Velonus? <laughs> that's what your life is like every year. Just oh, go ride one, in the Pyrenees. One and then big vacation. Spout off on a podcast about your takes. Right. It's one big vacation. It's this Pyrenean run is cool. It's it's going to be hard. The Pyrenees, you know, they've got funky rhythm to these climbs. There's steep ramps. There's little rests in the middle of climbs. It's the stages 16 through 19 essentially are all climbing stages. Stage 16 drops them into Bagnères de Luchon. That's going to be, I think, kind of a surprisingly tricky day. It descends the Portillon right into Bagnères de Luchon, and that's a tough climb and a technical tricky descent. But to me, that's where I see Nibali making mm. a move and it comes right after a rest day so you never know how they'll respond and then of course stage 17 is this weirdo short stage we keep talking about 65 kilometers this is the keep your powder dry to the end of the race tour de france um th- i feel like there's going to be real impetus for guys to look at the alps especially with the Alpe d'Huez day and and fire off some early bullets and with a race that has this big of a Pyrenean punch at the end, I think we're going to see, there, there could be a little, uh, there could be some like TJ Van Garderen effect going on of guys looking real good and you have a high hopes for them and then just the final week of this tour comes and clobbers them on the head. This is the Tour de France's way. It's a parody of, of the Vuelta. They're, okay. They're, it's their kind of, it's, it's like a little inside joke. They're like, oh, you want a short stage, huh? 100 kilometers, that's a little long. Let's just do six, Let's just do 65K. Let's just send them up to the highest altitude we can possibly find. It's, it's like they're trying to out-Vuelta the Vuelta. That's true. So I was at this past year's tour when we had uh, the stage to Foix, which had, oh, man, really great press buffet. Hoodie, were you there for the press buffet day? In Foix? I was there. Oh, I do not remember the press buffet that day, but I do remember Foix. I believe it was four and a half star. Four and a half star press buffet. Anyway, what made the Foix stage so interesting, because that was the one that was like 100K, a bunch of steep climbs, Planche de Belfi. Uh, no, Plateau, Planche de Belfi. It, what made the race interesting was the fact that 
Sky did not have yellow going into it. So they could be animators and they could really, really animate the race. You know, Contador went up the road with Landa and then Froome stayed behind and Kwiatkowski was attacking and this, that, and the other. So I, while I am excited about this 65 kilometer stage, I do think that the dynamics of the race and the what's going on with the yellow jersey heading into it will determine whether it is a stupid gimmick that we write really fiery takes about, about how dumb ASO is, or if we right you know congratulate aso for sticking outside the box and crafting crafting such an entertaining stage uh either way you know maybe like look at that day as schedule some time with the family that day because you're not going to have a six-hour stage to watch you're gonna have a lot of free time afterwards people will be going into uh, remission or whatever it is they're going to be little they're jonesing for more tour yeah they're 65 k yeah hoodie any takes any 65 k takes i I think it's going to be an exciting stage i mean come on three climbs i mean what 4,500 meters of vertical climbing and it's 65 Ks. That's insane. That's, that's attacking, but that's, that goes uphill right rolling out of the start village. I mean, the start village is probably built. To that so we're going to have a stage where very easily riders will be completely shut out the back. The bus, the Peloton, uh, the, the, the uh, Gruppetta will probably form in the neutralized rollout and it'll be the top 15, 10, 15, 20 GC guys already selected on the first climb if not certainly that second and that uh, uphill finale, the Col de Portet. I mean, come on, that, that's an insane climb. They're calling it the new Tourmalet. And I think, I mean, that's a stage where anything could happen. You can see a, a repeat of some of these stages that just blow up and everything just gets turned upside down. Here's a little stay woke for you guys on this, this stage. This okay. is, this is the tour de France's way of getting rid of all of the sprinters before the post stage with the next day, which is a sprint stage, because you know it's going to be hard to make the time cut on that day. Yeah. So they're just trying to like, I don't know why they got it out for the sprinters right now, but this is a, the sprinters are, they're going to be pissed. I mean, if they, if they miss a time cut here and aren't able to go through and race this stage to Poe, and then of course the Champs Elysees stage a few days later. ASO, shots fired at the sprinters. Wow, after the 2017 tour where every single day was a day for the sprinters, I feel like uh, it's well warranted. That's Yeah, it's the pendulum swinging the other way. Well, that's a good segue, Spencer, into uh, the final section here where we can wrap it up. Some, some fast, real fast questions. Uh, first question, is this, a re- is this year's tour route a reaction to something, do do we see this as a a reaction to either previous tours route um, changes going on in the sport, Chris Froome, anything? What is this tour route reacting to? I think it's part of a, a the next step in an evolution that, that began really 10, 15 years ago with the with the sport of cycling. These these grand tours trying to remain relevant in the modern context of what fans want, what the public wants, what the media is interested in, and what can sell a bike race. The old school idea of a war of attrition. Just doesn't. It's just. It's just boring to watch. So every day, in every stage, every Grand Tour course designer is trying to find something that's going to bring in the the viewing public, so they can sell it to their sponsors. I think it's part of a of an evolution that started going back to the early two thousands. A reaction to anything else? I think it's just part of something that's been going on already for several years. I like it. You sound like one of those like surf guys who's like, it's all like progression, man. You know, like the sport is just like just like growing, man. You know. All right, cool. Hey, bro, what, what do you think, Spencer? Is this a uh, this reaction? Is this oh, progression? Man. This is such a tasty tour out, man. It's just going to be such an epic wake up. Sick bro. tubes, so, bro. I think, Fred, this is a reaction to our old friend Warren Bargee winning the polka dot jersey last year. I think ASO saw that, and they're like, hey, you, wanted, you want some weird racing? You want some 
technical, tricky stages and some punchy, difficult climbs, why don't you uh, try for the overall this year, Warren? Because they'd love to see a French guy win, wouldn't they? Oh. I think that they're trying to bait Warren Bargui into racing for GC in this tour. We did see many Warren Bargui signs by the side of the road last year at the tour. And uh, good luck to him and his new team. He's like pro Conti guy now. Yeah, whatever. I think this is a reaction to the Kittle tour, aka last year's tour, where every other stage was some long slog that ended in a sprint and Hoodie, Kaylee, and Fred going and getting a beer and talking about how boring it was. Okay, on to the next question. Is this year's route harder or easier for a team to control? Mm. Hoodie, you want to go first? I'd say it's going to be much more difficult to control this race. You already have one rider less per team right off the bat. They're kind of like going into at least an unknown, I think, for Grand Tour riders at the Tour, especially the Tour de France. Uh, The way this course is, is, is laid out, with these kind of uh, ambush, it's like the tour of ambushes. There's there's oh, like one that. or two ambushes, the tour of ambushes, one or two, one or two a week. So it's going to be like going into Vietnam into the jungle, man. They're going to sort of come up on you. You have no idea where the bullets are coming from. I love this. It's tour ambush. I think we found the name of this year's tour uh, ambush. Or the, the name of this week's podcast. Tour ambush. Tour to ambush. <laughs> Spencer, I'll, I'll go. I think it's going to actually. I, I'm with Hoodie. I think it's going to be di- more difficult to control. Yes, eight riders, but then just like some of these really weird stages. Uh, the, the teams are going to have to do a lot of recon. Yeah. I think in order, if you really want to control this year's route, you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing recon. There's some there's some unusual things that they need to preview. Mm. Final time trial, all these short mountain stages, I agree. I think this is a hard tour for a team to control, except Team Sky. Yeah. Because they can control everything. That's so true. I think Team Sky will continue their reign of terror and... Should be should be easy pickings for Christopher to get number five, unless he crashes on the cobbles. Well, as we all know, they may not have uh, Mikel Nieve anymore, but they have Gianni Moscon, who Ooh, our favorite, our favorite. He's a real stand-up guy, isn't real he? Real control, real sweet man. Controlling ride. Hey, these are alleged things; they haven't been proven yet, <laughs> except for holding on to the team car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm excited. Hey, ASO, you created a pretty interesting, compelling tour route, and I cannot wait to have my excitement just thrown out the window when Chris everybody Froome crashes in Roubaix and Chris Froome gains nine minutes on the Alpe d'Huez stage. Uh, okay. Well, can't come soon enough. No, we're going to be paying attention to this one and we have ourselves a good tour route. So moving on. Spencer, Today's episode of the Velo News Podcast brought to us by our longtime sponsor and good friends with Health IQ. As we talked about at the top of the show, Health IQ caters to active people like you and me, guys and gals who go on vintage bike rides and participate in running and cycling races. And they're able to give a great rate to people like us because they work with people like us. And people like us tend to be more healthy and live longer. So our friends at Health IQ have a wonderful URL for fans of the Velo News podcast to go check that out. Head to healthiq.com slash velonews. Get that free quote. Help us out a little. They're our sponsor. We like to show them some love. That's healthiq.com slash velonews. Thanks to them for supporting the Velonews podcast. All right, back to the show. All 
right, guys, let's move on to our final segments here in the Velo News podcast. We're going to start off with Ask a Cat 3. As usual, we've got some great questions from our listeners coming in. If you want to ask a Cat 3, you can hit us up on Twitter at Velo News, hashtag Ask a Cat 3, or you can email us, webletters at competitorgroup.com. I mean, this tour route has me thinking of so many different Cat 3 racing scenarios. Yeah, you you guys need to, you know, put your thinking caps on for next week. Because if there's one thing that I've learned from being a Cat 3 is that it really gives you uh, expert insight into the Tour de France. Also, being a collegiate racer, I feel like, really gives Mm. you great insight Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. pro cycling. Uh, All right, Hoodie, we have some Cat 3 questions. uh, What's our first one? We have the first question from Sam Lefebvre. It was asking, he's soon moving to Boulder uh, to begin on his uh, cycling career. Oh, good move. He'll su- Smart he'll, move. Good move. He'll soon be a Cat 3 racer. And he said, uh, to inspire slower riders like myself who want to improve, what are the best kind of photos to put on my Instagram feed? Mm, this, is, this is a really good question. We all know that contracts, team contracts for Cat 3s are won and lost on the social media game. And you gotta, you got to have your social media game on point. I'm thinking... You know, you got to make sure your legs are flexing so you can show how cut your legs are. Ooh, yeah. And uh, definitely pick some some spots to shoot the photo that that's like at the top of a mountain. You could drive up there if you want. You don't have to ride all the way up. You could just just make sure you're there so people think you climbed it. Yeah, big mountain f- shot. Uh, Spencer, I was going to say he could have some great Instagram shots of his Strava records. Oh, nice. You know, nice. just kind of a humble brag, just kind of a like, oh, hey, I went for like an easy recovery ride today and set a couple Strava KOMs in Boulder where every other KOM is owned by some like world tour stooge who comes here and just crushes them so that's great yeah also i like the, sh- the photo of your garmin head unit after a long ride oh, yeah. just, just like, oh man i'm just kind of beat from this one um but since it's boulder i was go- I-, I was just gonna say w- uh make sure it's of you riding in a beautiful locale and then make sure that the date and timestamp lets people know that it's like middle of the day not working during a work day yeah just like hey man i'm serious i'm in boulder and i do not have a job boom yeah put that all right let's see uh what else we got hoodie the next question comes from Jackson, who was racing this summer in the Baker City Cycling Classic in Oregon. And he said he overheard a very insightful conversation between some of the lower category riders. Oh, man. And they're, 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 they were debating the arrow benefit versus the weight penalty of using more than four pins to pin down your race number on the back of your jersey. Wow. Mm. Wow. These guys are thinking. Cat 3 advice on pinning the jersey? <sighs> what do you think, Fred? Well, I just got to say, you, you, the first thing you got to do is crumple crumple that number up, you know? Crumple mm. that number up like you're wadding it up to like it's a Kleenex full of snot that you're going to throw away and then pin it on. I say... Since I'm a Cat 3, I, I use, like, all the pins. Yeah. I use so many pins. Because you're probably going to crash and you yeah. don't want it to rip off too much. Yeah, yeah. So four pins, five pins, 10 pins, 40 pins. More pins, the better. Weight, the weight is no no matter for you. I got you. And the, I like your crumpling tip. That's a good one because it's like a golf ball with the dimples. That you, you, dis, you disrupt the airflow and yeah. you get that uh, laminar flow, fa- faster aerodynamics. The only thing I'd add here is uh, this is a nice opportunity to buy something. And the thing I'd suggest you buy in this case is that 3M spray adhesive stuff oh and use that to glue on your number because then you don't have any pins. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good, good little uh, bonus uh, ad there. Dude, totally pro. That is so pro. Mm. Cat ooh, 3 pro. Maybe it's too pro to be Cat 3. <laughs> That's true. Oh, man. I think that, ooh, I'm getting a little, I better better ease up. I don't want to have to upgrade. So, right. yeah, 30 pins or the spray on laminate. All, All right, right, Hoodie, what's our final Ask a Cat 3? The final question comes from Lauren 
who is going to be riding the uh, Perry Robay Sportif this spring. Mm. And she says, uh, a little bit intimidated about the crashing and how to prepare. Her question is, what advice do I really need from a Cat 3 to race the Perry Robay Sportif? Oh, man. I have not done the Perry Robay Sportif, but I've done the Flanders one. Hey, but we've watched enough Perry Roubaix yeah. on TV that I think it's we're true. pretty much experts on it. And I've done the Flanders and Ghent Wevelgum. And I got to say, uh, the Cat 3 equivalent in Belgium sportives is terrifying. It is just totally horrifying because those people get after it and they have different levels of like decorum and et cetera. So I would say my advice for you for doing that is just just send it, man. Like if we, there's one thing that we've been hearing from pro cycling or pro cyclists in the States this year, it's just send it. So I say just pin it to win it, go as hard as you can from the get-go, see how long you can hold on. I would say there's a lot of these American Roubaix now that use the word Roubaix in their name. They're dirt road races. And I think that's basically the same thing as the cobblestones because yeah. they're called Roubaix. So if you just do a few of those, you're probably going to be totally fine. And that'll, that'll be all you need to, to get prepped for it. That's a good question. You know, I, w- I remember riding with some uh, guys out here in Boulder and we went over some like washboard on a dirt road and they're like, hey, this is harder than Paris-Roubaix, right? And I was oh, like, yeah. yeah, 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 sure. Definitely. Totally. Way harder. Yeah. Just uh, do some dirt roads and that's basically the same. Yeah, call it You'll good. be fine. Okay. That was it. As always, please send in more Ask a Cat 3 questions for us and myself and Spencer, who are two lowly Cat 3s, will give our worldly wisdom. Moving on, Spencer, we have we have a podium coming up here because it's Tour de France time. We had to come up with a Tour de France themed podium. So podium question, Spencer, lay it on me. What is it? Right. So it is the off season. So we're doing a weekly podium to give us something to talk about, have a little fun. And this week, Hoodie, Fred, and myself are picking our podiums for Tour de France villains. Okay. The villains of the tour. And I, I think, Hoodie, you should be going first on this one. Yeah, there's, there's so much treachery and villainy in, in, in cycling. That, you know, it's so hard to keep it down to three. But I, I, my first villain uh, of my list is going to be Ricardo Rico, mm, the Cobra. Good choice. He was, he was a great – he was like the last of the great dopers. I mean, this guy was <laughs> – under unrepentant he was just jacked up for every race he started and uh you know you gotta say you gotta miss rico and, and the drama he brought to the race for all the wrong and right reasons what was that Number stage where he list- broke away with like people and they put like or was it cobo and they put just so much time on the entire peloton and at the uh tour de france and won it would, everyone was just like oh buddy yeah, yeah you have so much blood well- the Ultacom, yeah, up there in the Pyrenees. Uh, number two on my list is Rishi Richard Varank. He was a real wanker, that guy. He was just, uh, he was he was a villain and, and also just a, I mean, a lot of people did not like Varank in the bunch because they thought he was such a showboat. But all of the other pros, you know, he was always uh, showboating for the cameras, trying to get in those big uh, breakaways, kind of like a, a dirty version of uh, Thomas Vokler. And isn't Varank now like a color commentator for the tour or something like that? On French he TV? is indeed. He, no, he, he's 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 a full. He's 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 one of the higher profile kind of ex pro celebrities in France, without oh a doubt. God. I mean, it's always been forgotten. And of course, my number one villain is uh, Lance. You know, Big Tex. I mean, he did so much villainry that he could write a, a nice top twenty list of his different incidents and uh, a little. Uh, but my, for me, what uh, really put over the top for me was how Armstrong treated Felipe uh, Felipe Simeone. And that mm. one stage, late late in that one Tour de France, I think it was like 2003, 2004, 
when uh, Simeone was trying to come back, trying to win a stage, trying to get into a breakaway. And uh, Lance was just really out of control with that year. It was like towards the end of his first little run there of his seven tours, just completely out of control. His uh, narcissism was, I think, at its peak during that tour when he when he chased him down and made him zip the lips gesture and uh, forced Simeone out of that breakaway. That to me, in terms of like blatant villainy, that's uh, that's right there at the top of my list. Oh, made for an amazing scene in the uh, program, the Lance Armstrong right. biopic. That was one of the highlights of the program. I wonder how many times they had to like try that scene over and over again with the director being like, "Now, Ben, um, you got it more more sinister, less smiling." Based on how crappy that movie was, I'm guessing the director wasn't that much of a... <laughs> Everything wasn't. was a single take. Yeah, he's like, oh, whatever. Uh, we got it. All right, next enough. scene. Let's go. <laughs> uh, okay, that's a good podium. Who's next? Um, all right, Spencer, you want to give us your podium? Should I? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. I'm going to start off with Bernardino. Okay. Because there was the whole drama with him and Greg LeMond. Obviously, as an American, I see Hino as the villain in that scenario, but it just depends on your perspective. But Hino... In that, uh, was it the 86 tour when they had that battle for, for the leadership? That was, uh, that was pure villainry if you're going to try and throw your own teammate under the bus like that. I would Qu- say. Question for you. Did Bernard Hino redeem himself by becoming the bouncer for the tour podium by every year just like shoving people into the crowd whenever they would get up on the tour podium? Is that a redeeming quality? Well, here's the thing about villains <laughs> is you can love the villains. That's true. You can love them for what they are and just their, their thuggishness. Mm-hmm. And in Hino's case, that's certainly true. Uh, my number two on my podium for Tour de France villains. This is going to be a little bit of a this is a little weird, a bit of a weird one, I think. But I'm going to say Chris Froome, Ooh. because he's just been so dominant these last five ish years, and that Hope. makes him kind of a, a bit of a villain. In a, he's a friendly villain, but he he just has this kind of boot on on the throat of the Tour de France, just not letting it go. Polarizing character that Chris Froome, but he's so nice too. It's like a he's like a creepy villain, like like some sort of serial killer style villain, where he's just like. Hello, I'm here for another Tour de France victory. Um, your Twitter mentions are going to be a tire fire now, Spencer. You know that, that all of our good listeners in the British Isles are going to oh, at you. They love um, me. And just just for uh, listeners in British Isles, that is at Spino underscore Powerlegs. Uh, so I make it hard to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have a little conversation with Spencer on this Join one. the conversation, join the conversation. In my final, number one, going way back here, Maurice Garin, the winner of the very first Tour de France because he actually just stomped on one of his competitor's bikes in the very first tour because he was afraid that he was going to be challenged for the overall lead. This was late in the tour. Shout out to Peter Cousins for his great book on that first tour. He did that, and also he was disqualified from the second tour for cheating. So Maurice Garin, actually not a cool dude, even though he won the first tour. Uh, he was very competitive. It is uh, simple. You are a sportif, <laughs> and you must do what sportifs do. I got to figure that that would hurt because uh, that was back in the day when bicycles were like what welded together wrought iron that weighed 900 pounds. So he, he was a small man. I'm not sure how he himself. actually managed to damage that bicycle, but he did. He did. Uh, okay. I'm going to give my tour uh, villains podium here, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, guys. I took a different route. I took a different tack on this one. I like fresh takes. It's okay. Good. This is going to be a fresh take. Okay. Uh, in third place, is that... Gosh darn dog that took out Jimmy Casper at the 2007 Ooh, Tour de France. Nice. Man, here's Jimmy Casper. He's right in the breakaway. He's the strongest guy. He's probably going to win. And a friggin' dog comes and takes him out. Bad dog. Bad, bad, bad. You are on my podium. Um, okay. Number two is that, uh, that glasses wearing wiener who knocked over Giuseppe Garini when Garini was uh, going to win Alpe d'Huez in 1999. Wow. Like the dude just steps out into the middle of the road with a point and shoot 
hoping to get the best photo of all time, which I don't believe we've ever seen that photo, but he knocked Garini off his bike. They didn't have any Instagram back then to share that type of thing on. Yeah. I, you know what? I could go cheater podium and go to top five. I'm just going to go top three. You're not going to do mountain bike podium? No, I think we'll I'm save that. Do top three. Maybe not yet. So my number one villain of the Tour de France um, in recent years those dang fans who threw piss on Chris Froome. He's a tour champion. You can't throw pee-pee on him. Here are, you know what? Here are the acceptable fluids to throw on Tour de France winners. <laughs> Number one. Is this a bonus podium? Water. This is a bonus podium. Number two, vitamin water. Vitamin water? Number that's three, sticky. Fiji water. Number four, holy water. That's all you should be throwing on the Tour de France champion. No mm. pee-pee. Gosh. Wow. Good. That's good, Fred. I like that. So pee-pee right. throwing fans. Stay away from our tour champ. We're going we're gonna to toss these up on Twitter for you guys to vote on. Tell us who you thought the best podium was for this week. So check out our Twitter a little bit later. And um, last, last week, I, I think I made the mistake of adding the option of they're all idiots as one of the voting choices, which won handily last week. Yeah. So I don't know if I'll do that again because you guys, yeah, I don't know if I should give you that sort of liberty to, to really throw us under the bus like that. Well, I support your takes on labeling us all idiots because that's, hey, they're just joining the conversation, yeah. Spencer. Yeah, that's You know, true. we're building community here. That's right. That's how brands work. Brands love to see authentic reactions from fans uh, calling us all a bunch of dum-dums. Well, hey, we'd love the feedback on what you talked about today. We'd love the feedback on what we talked about today, too. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on Velonies.com. Subscribe to the Velonies podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment or rating. Please, uh, become a fan of Velonies on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velonews. The Velonews podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. Yeah. Wow. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Valley's podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Curdy Classic Soul Drums. 